Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to a very special episode of the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Conversations on Jesuit Higher Education. In this episode, Mistakes Are Proof You Are Trying, we are joined by Andre Isaacs, Associate Professor of Chemistry at College of the Holy Cross, who shares his thoughts about how to build learning communities by meeting students where they are. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again, and such a pleasure to be able to introduce you and your work to the broader audience of Fordham and the Conversations readers and colleagues at Jesuit universities and colleges across the country. So Andre Isaacs is an associate professor of chemistry at Holy Cross. And Andre and I went on a trip to Spain, a kind of Jesuit-sponsored, Holy Cross-sponsored trip to Spain to follow kind of the path of Ignatius. So that's how he and I became acquainted. And then I thought it would be perfect to talk to you about teaching because you have been an absolute rock star and TikTok breakout star. Um, and so it's been so fun to watch you in labs, dancing with your students and talking. So there's a lot we've got to talk about, but I just wanted to welcome you onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's my pleasure. This is very exciting. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your work as a chemistry professor? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of my teaching is informed by how I learned chemistry back home in Kingston, Jamaica. I went to a Jesuit high school as well, um, wow. St. George's College High School for Boys in Kingston, and I had a great chemistry teacher, but it really was my uncle who inspired me with his kind of teaching models to really emulate his the way his style of teaching. And he was really passionate about about chemistry and the way in which he engaged students. And, and I found myself gravitating towards the classes more and more. And at the time, I really was drawn to math, but his style was so, so welcoming that chemistry really became a passion of mine at end of high school and throughout college. And of course, now as a, as a professor of chemistry. But really drawing from what I witnessed and how I was engaged as a student, I kind of took those experiences and, and I've since brought them into my own way of engaging students. And that's to realize that you have to build a community where every student feels as if they're contributing, that they're a part of a community, and that they're not just the outsiders watching some students excel and that they also are contributing and learning. So I think it's important to keep those pieces, you know, in the back of your mind when you organize your course to make sure that you are empowering every single student. And it doesn't all happen in the classroom, right? It happens for some students outside the classroom in very different ways. And I think it's our jobs, if we really want to be effective as a teacher, to find those connections with our students to really get them to be passionate about the, the subject material. Can you talk a little bit about strategies that you use for bringing in people that you may see as struggling a little bit or a little bit reluctant to participate or maybe falling behind or maybe you know it's a student of color who feels like you know I know my professor's black but I don't know if I you know I'm looking around the classroom there's a lot of white faces here do I really belong in this department in this major do I really belong pursuing STEM the literature shows that um, that sense of belonging is something we see that a lot of our minority students or students of color, first-gen students and international students, they really struggle with, particularly in STEM. Like we do not do a very good job in STEM of creating a welcoming atmosphere. 
And so our students really do feel that way. And so it's important to find ways of connecting with these students. So things I do is I definitely at the beginning of the semester, or the, I make it very clear that diversity is very important to me and that I value what each student brings to the course and the fact that we all think about things in different ways. And the literature shows that some of the most well-cited work are actually works that are done in a collaborative effort across a um, diverse group of collaborators, right? Oh, that's so great. I make sure I mention that to my students and I also tell them that how the way they think about a problem from their own cultural backgrounds might be beneficial to all of us and that we shouldn't overlook how someone approaches a problem because problem solving isn't just, there's not just one way to think about solving a problem. And that I myself have learned over the years from students about how to approach a problem in a new, clever way that I didn't think about. And so I look forward to each of them bringing their own ideas and their own ways of thinking about problems to the class and that we all should view that as a, as a blessing. Can I ask you about the dance videos? <laughs> how did that get started? It's and funny. A lot of people think I've recruited all these dancers into my research lab or my courses when in fact, it just turned out that a few of my students are actually dancers and they are pretty good dancers and better dancers than I am. And they have made suggestions and they're like, this dance would be really perfect. We should learn this. So most of the dances you see that I put out are actually suggestions from students and then they hold rehearsals that I have to <laughs> attend. <laughs> I have to attend rehearsals, learn the choreography, and then I'm told I have 24 hours to go perfect it. And then we record. I've seen a few of your, your videos on TikTok. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what TikTok is. Some of our listeners may not know TikTok. And then how did you see a connection between TikTok and your teaching and your students? TikTok is a very big social media platform that kind of took off a few years ago. I'd say probably three, four years ago. And it is one that involves culture sharing, I would say. Um, a lot of dance videos where people choreograph dances and then everyone who has the app can see these dances and replicate them and put their own spin on them. It's also a platform to share information whatever kind of information you want to share. It, comedy is a huge part of the platform. And so one thing that you get to learn a lot on TikTok is really how Gen Z thinks, how they operate, their humor, the, the language they use, how they communicate, and the things that excite them and the things that don't. <laughs> you know, I've learned a lot about my millennial identity and the things that irk them and the things they find to be uncool. So my vocabulary has changed as a result and the things I know they're drawn to, um, to I've come to learn and can, can use that in my courses and communicate with them, you know, using their language. So that's what the app is. I joined it during the pandemic, right at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all sent home just as a way to pass the time and to find some joy and quickly found that I could use the app to reach a broader audience of, of scientists or students who might be struggling with, with identifying with STEM, much like I felt in some of my younger years. And just to see an example of, the, of a person that reminds them of themselves who's been successful and that they could, you know, take some joy in seeing some, some science and a different way of existing in the STEM field. So our dance videos that I do with my students are kind of an example of that, a different model of being in the lab with your student-faculty relationship. And you can have some fun times dancing together 
or you can have some just good times joking around and, and, and showing the lab in a new light. So do you see as a teacher some value in having your students teach you? Does that change yes. the dynamic of the class? It does change the dynamic. And I think it's an important dynamic because I think one thing students come into our cor their courses thinking is that they are here, they're inferior to the faculty member who is there to provide knowledge they don't have access to. And that is a, that it's a one-way street. And that reinforces the power dynamic. And students oftentimes are scared to meet with their faculty members or to, to engage them in a, in a way that they feel would be more, you know, they could be more relaxed in their presence. So I think making clear to my students that you're here to learn from me, but I would love to learn from you as well on any subject matter, whether it is dance or whether it's music, um, I think that empowers students and students build up more a deeper and more lasting and stronger connection and are more likely to come into office hours and, and have a conversation and talk about not just science or chemistry or whatever course subject they're teaching, but, but, but music or dance or any other um, matter. So what have your students told you about what it's been like to kind of have this way of playing with the professor. I mean, it really is very playful and joyful. It's, you know, it's hard work. It's real choreography that you're doing. Um, but it's not, it's, it's not directly about the lab, but it's about camaraderie and community. Yes. And I think, you know, the literature shows, and anyway, I've, I've been reading a lot about, you know, DEI work, uh, and the literature really shows that students excel, particular minority students, in environments that feel more community-like to them. And, and so for me, fostering a, a sense of community has been the primary way that I've been able to engage all my students. And so I, I feel as if we have to create some kind of a community. And so for some students, it's, it's, it's a dancing. For other students, it might just be me showing up at their events whether, you know, it's their sporting events and other things. So I think it's showing up for students or making them feel valued. Encouraging them to work with each other outside of class as well is, is an important, are important ways of building community. So however you can do that, I, you know, it just turned out that a few of my students really love to dance and that's kind of fun for me. And I've been really drawn to that. But, but I think we have to think, you know, in, in what, whatever ways we can reach our students to build community, we should we should embrace that. What have you heard? Have you heard from people outside of Holy Cross about this? And what have you been hearing in terms of feedback for? Yeah, a lot of people are actually quite surprised. Like, wow, you find time to dance, and I would love to do that. And you know, I could never do that. I'm not a good dancer. I'm not. And you know, it's the feedback has been generally positive. Yes, I think a lot of people think it's a good way to to not just um, help students persist but also to encourage students who had um, negative ideas of what it's like to be in STEM fields. Like I've also heard from people who said, you know, my kid really wants to join to be a chemist now. I really wants to be a scientist because they, they see the way you engage your students. And, and this is something that they want to be a part of. And they're like, oh, science isn't so boring after all. You could still be a very serious student and you could also still be happy and be smiling and have fun in the, in, in the space. So I think that's kind of what I've been hearing from a lot of people. And I, and I hope other people see this as a positive way of like reaching, you know, a wider audience um, and inspiring students who traditionally wouldn't consider STEM as a, as a career because they felt as if it wasn't um, something they'd be welcomed in. One of the themes of in, in the work Anna and I did this past pandemic year has been around faculty feelings of vulnerability around disclosure 
teaching from their home, you know, with their children or their pets or in their, in their personal space, a kind of vulnerability and how that vulnerability has informed their practice and, and maybe grounded it more in, in a compassionate outlook. And I'm, I'm watched a few of your TikToks and I, I, that's what I felt immediately. I would feel like so vulnerable trying to do these movements with my students, trying to connect with them in that way. Is that something that you thought about in, in, in that context, putting yourself out there, modeling failure and vulnerability for your students as a way for them to think about STEM? Modeling failure, as you as you you phrased it, is is very important. You know, I often tell my students that failure is a part of a success, right? And that's something I tell them all the time, particularly in the lab. Like you have to fail in order to succeed, and you're probably going to fail more than you'll succeed in the lab. Seventy five percent of the, the the reactions you run won't work, and and it's a part of the process, right? And so I think having students see that in their faculty member, like being vulnerable in any way possible, making mistakes on the board and accepting that, you know, saying, you know, I made that mistake and, and, and I admit I'm not perfect, I think reinforces for students the fact that it's okay to fail and, and you should be okay with that and it's a part of the process and you should, you should embrace it and it'll help you move forward. So yes, I do think it's one way of of, of modeling vulnerability, um, some of my dances. And, and I try to do that in class as well. If I make a mistake and a student points something out, I readily accept that. And I and I like to point that out and, and say, see, I'm not perfect either. <laughs> Don't expect yourself to be perfect. When we first started thinking about moving to online because of the pandemic, those were two areas that we kind of struggled to, to articulate and to think through. How do you do performance-based classes? And a, and a lab is a performance-based environment, right? You're, you're moving mm -hmm. in physical space or interacting with objects. Um, did, did you see a connection there or did that become evident sort of after upon reflection? Yeah, I think that became evident upon reflection for me. Uh, I didn't immediately see that connection until I started participating in, in, in the dance and with the students and recognizing the, the impact. Um, yeah, so I, I've learned a lot, I would, I'll have to say, from engaging students in this, these new ways. And I've realized, I've, I've literally changed my, my pedagogy so much from feedback I've gotten from students and recognizing um, the things they value and how to engage them. I have definitely learned a lot and I'm still learning. And so I've really revamped my entire course this semester in terms of how I, I evaluate student um, performance. And a lot of it has to do with creating alternative ways of evaluating students. That's not just exam-based. And that's because exams don't allow students to make mistakes, right? They're not allowed to be vulnerable and make mistakes and learn. You know, an exam, they're taking it. And if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. But if you give a student an assignment, they can take it home. They can work on it. They can fail. They can correct it. Um, they can learn from it. Definitely trying to, to incorporate more active learning in the classroom. And, and other forms of evaluating students that are not just primarily exam-based, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more, because we've had a lot of conversations at Fordham with professors who work in, field, in chemistry and in mathematics and in other STEM fields where there are right answers yes. about how you, how you assess a wrong answer, degrees of wrongness, you know, do you give credit for kind of getting it okay up to this point? And how do you, just simply incorporate active learning 
when you really do need them to balance the equation in this exact way, that you know, they need to arrive at a precise answer. It's not like my teaching in English where it's like, oh, that's really interesting, but let's look at it a different way. No, it's like, that's wrong. And that's exactly why you have to have active learning that encourages students to participate in the process of getting to the to the right answer, right? So, so I have students work in class on the process. And if they develop a process for getting to the right answer, then they will. And so that's what I do in my in my class. So it's not necessarily getting to the right answer, but helping them make the mistakes in class and see why the mistakes, what the mistakes are and, and how to address those mistakes. Uh, and so that for me is, is the important part of active learning. Um, it's not necessarily to get at the answer immediately, but to, to develop a process for getting to the correct answer and to learn how to eliminate the, the pathways that lead you to the incorrect answer. <laughs> I'm thinking again about this context of dance and learning to dance with your students. And that idea of right and wrong is almost entirely irrelevant from that process, right? It, it, it's because you understand that I'm just practicing, I'm growing and developing. The idea that right and wrong are end states that don't really exist in performative spaces in quite the same way as they would in an evaluative space, like a final exam. Yes. I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to make connections between, to make it more explicit for other instructors who are not maybe so inclined to, to dance. What, what are some themes or practices in your methodology that you've extracted that you can share with us? So. Some, some things that you're thinking about when you're designing your class. We have discussions in class. I think discussions, for example, I'll pose a, a, a problem. Here is a starting compound. How would we transform this molecule into this product, right? And I will ask, does anyone have a suggestion? No, very important. You have to make sure you create an atmosphere where one or two students aren't dominating the classes classroom discussion because students don't learn very well, especially the students who don't feel as if they're very strong, they're less inclined to participate if they're those one or two students who are constantly answering and getting it right. And then that doesn't help you to get the students who don't like to do not speak a lot to participate, right? Because they'll always feel inferior. But if you pose a question, for example, as I mentioned, how do we get from A to B, right? What is a process one would utilize? Then you allow students to propose um, an answer, right? And then the way in which you refine the answers or you see through the answers or you push them to think differently is kind of leading them to, to the, the solution, right? So it's kind of similar to dancing. Okay, you're making this mistake with your hand in this way. You, you might want to think about doing it this way. Let's do this a few times, right? So in the same vein, you can say, okay, so I think what our issue is here is that we are not understanding that we need to do the brominations first, okay? Let's talk about why this is important. And then that helps you to figure out where your students are, where they're struggling, what they need to work on to be able to move on to the next part of the process. And once you feel like you, you know, they get that well enough, then you can move on. So it's really not that much different from that. So you can't go from A to B without taking a few, go off the, the pathway a little bit and refining some of the, the, the processes, the movements 
or in chemistry, some of the reactions that you need to be thinking about. So you just have to be constantly aware of where your students are and, and um, try to find ways to get them back on the path. There's a lot of students who are happy sometimes, even though it's not good for their learning, to let the, the most eager students leap in with the answer. And so you've talked a couple times about what an important value it is for you to make sure everyone's engaged. I'm wondering if you have strategies for doing that. Are you cold calling on people? Are you taking turns? What is the process? Yeah, so I, I often cold call and I think cold calling is tricky because you want to make sure that you are cold calling on the right person. And so if there's a student you suspect is weaker in, um, in, in, with the material, you can't cold call that student with the toughest question, right? So you want to cold call that student with a question you are pretty confident they'll get right. And if you do that, then they feel better answering subsequent questions. That's how I do cold calling. And if I call, if I have a challenging question and I don't want anyone to get it right, I might cold call on someone who I know might not necessarily get it right, but is comfortable with answering a question and getting it wrong. And then that allows me to then have a further discussion with the entire class by soliciting feedback from different people in the class. So I do cold call, but I do it strategically to empower students who don't like to participate and also to, to utilize students who are very eager as a way to have a, a broader discussion in the class. The other thing I do is assignments. There are some students who, when you cold call, they will not, they will freeze up and they're like, oh, I don't know. And you don't want to keep putting them on the spot or keep them feeling uncomfortable. So another way I do it is through assignments. So I've been grading weekly assignments that I, I give them on Fridays. They have the weekend to turn them in on Canvas and they turn them in on Monday. I grade them Sunday night, uh, Monday morning before class. And that's my opportunity to give them feedback. And they're very simple questions, right? The kinds of processing that I want them to do to get to the answers that I need them to answer. And so I'll give them feedback, written feedback in Canvas. Immediately, I'm like, okay, you want to be thinking about this. And that's also an opportunity for me to pull them into my office. I'm like, this is a nice idea. And I like where you're going with this. Why don't you come in? So let's talk about, so we can talk about these problems a little bit more and we can refine your understanding of this. And so that's one way I try to pull the students who refuse to come to office hours or who don't like to participate in class. I can still work with them one-on-one -on -one because I'm giving them weekly feedback and sometimes I can use that to pull them into my office so I can work with them. I love how you phrase that just now because uh, it would be very easy to say this is wrong, you know, but you said, this is a nice idea. I like how you're working on this, right? And so it's really like building the student's confidence in no, you've got it kind of 30% right. You're on the right track. We were very far from our destination, but you are going in the right direction. Or maybe you're not going in the right direction, but boy, you've got really good speed built up. Let's turn you around exactly. and get you going in the right way. I think the STEM fields in particular have issues around student self-efficacy and learned helplessness formulating your assessment and feedback positively, and then creating a space where students can be wrong. The purpose of this discussion is not really an opportunity for you to demonstrate that you know. I imagine the idea is not to solve this one problem, but to come up with the structure of problem solving. The students begin to understand, oh, that's how you solve problems. Exactly, right. It's the really building that process of solving problems that not necessarily getting to the right answer immediately. And I think once they uh, develop a process for problem solving, their confidence grows 
and then they're more likely to to work um, on problems more. One of the things that I am occasionally jealous of in terms of faculty and students in STEM fields is the kind of close collaboration you get when you have lab assistants, when you have student workers in the lab, you have research assistants in the lab who work with you closely. Can you talk a little bit about teaching in the laboratory setting, both the kind of teaching you do with the whole class in the lab, and then the teaching you do with your more advanced students who may work with you over the summer or on a special project as a senior? Lab really is the place that I get to know most of my students. Um, um, I get to know them the best. But I found that I've gotten to know my students really well, even the ones I teach in a regular class in the lab setting, because they're conducting experiments, you're walking around, you're checking their setups, you're making sure everything, everything looks good. And then there's downtime, right? And then during that downtime is when the conversations start. They're like, Professor, what did you do this weekend? You know, and then you're like, what did you do this weekend? You know, how was your weekend? How are you finding courses? And, and so that allows for you to get for you to really find common interests with your students. You know, one student of mine has given me a long list of anime films to watch because I told him I was watching this particular anime. And all of a sudden I have a list of anime films to watch from a student. And so, you know, TV shows, Netflix series, you know, you name it, music. I've gotten lists of like albums and artists I should listen to. So, so you kind of build community with your students, you know, in the lab by just walking around, spending time with them and, and, and kind of treating them like a human, you know, like what, what makes you tick outside of chemistry? What keeps you going when you're not studying? And, and you'd be surprised how that will be enough for a student to be drawn towards you um, to be able to come to your office and be comfortable just, just, just having a conversation about coursework with you because you have, you know, common, common interests. Well, and sometimes it's not just the common interest, it's knowing that you have interests, right? It doesn't matter. <laughs> but I mean, but we seem yeah. scary to them. We do. We really do. It's like humanizing your professor. You know, a lot of kids come in freshmen, they think professors are these inaccessible people um, that they should like fear. And, and I, I want my students to realize that I, I have fears like they do. I have concerns. I have questions about a wide range of things. I want to learn. I have things I could learn. So I, I think making your students realize that, yes, I have a PhD in this subject matter and I'm delivering this to you, um, but I am, I am no better than you as, an, as, a, as a human being. And I think students would, um, re really are kind of drawn towards that kind of a, of a, of a, a relationship, I would say. Um, for the students in my research lab, no, it's a little bit different. I get much closer to those students because they have to share data with me sometimes in real time. So they all have my phone numbers. So oh, right. They have to, my research students who work with me for two or three years, depending on how long, they have to, they text me data constantly. They're like, oh, we're running this experiment. Um, the holes popped out. What should I do? You know, and, you know, so we're immediately FaceTiming or something. And those students I build lasting relationships with because, you know, we are constantly communicating. And, and, and so we, I mean, I, I have dinners and lunches, they come back to campus after they've graduated, they work at their companies or in graduate school. And it's, it's these really wonderful relationships that you get to build with those students that I would say um, also, I would say are powerful. That's so interesting because I definitely have spoken to colleagues who have wanted really to draw a line between delivering content and themselves as whole people. 
And when we think about ourselves as educators in the Jesuit context, right, I think there's a lot of encouragement in Jesuit pedagogy to think about bringing your whole self to the classroom, but not every faculty member is comfortable with that. And a lot of people take comfort in those boundaries. How do you keep healthy boundaries for yourself? And what would you say if a junior colleague came to you and said, Andre, you know, I just, I just want to teach organic chemistry and, you know, we're just going to go over formulae and reactions and balancing equations. And then I'm done. I'm going to grade their exams and move on. How would you encourage them to try your methodology? Yeah, well, I will say I'm an anomaly <laughs> and I and I do not expect anyone to be as involved um, as I am, or maybe I'm the extreme <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, student engagement, you know, building those faculty student relationships and boundaries are critical. They're extremely important and you have to have those boundaries. And I think it's really up to that faculty member to know what their own boundaries are. But at, but at the end of the day, your goal is to make your students feel as if they belong in a community and that you are accessible and you are willing to support them in whatever ways you can, right? And, and I don't think it needs to be support that means dancing with your students or support that means showing up to their games. You might not have time to do those things, right? But it's really the being genuinely interested in students' development, in their development, in their learning process. And if students sense that you care, then you've done your job. Um, you'll make an impact, I should say, on, on, on student outcomes. Thinking back on your life as a student, uh, I'd love to hear you reflect on a teacher or teachers who've been important to you. The first one I would say is my uncle. He was very important to me. And the reason why he was important to me was because he, he believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. He told me that you are going to be a scientist. And I said, really? I said, he said, yes. And um, that belief really, really carried me through. I mean, he spent time with me. He sat me down. He helped me with my homework. He was just the most caring and supportive person. One of my first professors, Ron Jarrett, who taught me um, organic chemistry, also shared similar, um, a similar um, sentiments with me. He he um, told me, he's like, you know, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, graduate school? <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to work on this chemistry degree just to say I have one. He's like, no, he's like, you are cut out for graduate school and you should get a PhD. And, and you know, this is encouraging ways. And the, the things he wrote on my exams, you know, when I got like, for example, high 90s on a test and he'd be like, king of enolate chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> you know and those kind of positive feedback and just kind of support just you know is the kind of things that I want to do for my students is just you know even when they get one question fully right out of all the other questions on the test I like to point that I'm like this is amazing work on this page for me the people who really pushed me were the ones who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself and I see a lot of that in my students a lot of them don't necessarily believe they can make it a lot of them have you know think that they're fighting an uphill battle and and you know we've all been there and the, the times that i've been 
you know, successful, you know, are, have been times that came out of, of, of low points when people believed in me and said, you can do this. And then I rose from it and I did some of my best work. Um, so I would say those two people were the first two and it kept going on. My PhD advisor was, was another very important person to me. You know, I, in, in my third year of graduate school, I was really struggling struggling really hard and he said you are one of my best students i've ever had and you are struggling instead of saying you're struggling you need to pick it up he's like i have a collaborator in san francisco i would like you to go there and work work with him for a month and you know that having that kind of the ability to see when a student just needs some support i think is is important Thank you so much for your time. It's great talking to you. It's it's just absolutely knowing you. It's no surprise at all to me what an inspiring teacher you are and that you're a breakout star of the pandemic, that you've figured out a way to find joy in this low time and that you continue to transform and inspire your students. So it's really a privilege to know you and thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.